Hi, everybody, and welcome. We're glad you could join us. Um, a big welcome if you're joining us again uh, this week uh, and you were with us last week for the Pedestrian Planning Concepts webinar. Um, today's webinar will be presenting why and how to measure walking activities, highlighting good practice pedestrian planning and design guidance from the updated Guide to Traffic Management series. My name's Elena Gardner. I'm the Communications Manager at Austroads, and I'll be moderating today's session. I acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we're broadcasting today. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitangi and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. So a little bit about Austroads, we're the peak organisation of Australasian transport and traffic agencies. Our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. We use a program management approach to deliver our work and each program is focused on an operational area of the road system. The uh, content that we're discussing today was delivered under the network program, which is managed by Richard Delplace. So some housekeeping for today. Our presenters are going to speak for 40 minutes and then we'll have a Q&A session that will run for 15 minutes. We do record all of our webinars and we'll email you once the recording is uploaded on our website. We also distribute our webinars via podcast and you can subscribe to our channel by searching for Austroads in your podcast app. Today's presentation slides can be downloaded from the handout section in your sidebar. You'll find that over on the right-hand side of your screen. If you run into any technical problems today, please let me know in the questions section of your sidebar. Ekaterina is going to be helping us uh, field questions today, so you might get a response from her as well. Just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, that is most likely an issue with your connection. Closing your browser and rejoining the session via your email registration usually fixes that issue. So the guide to traffic management with this, which this webinar is based on can be downloaded from our website. I've also popped part three of the guide to traffic management in your um, handout section today. A lot of the content that we're going to cover today uh, references the guide to traffic management part three. So please do send us your questions um, if you have any for the Q&A session. You can do that at any time in the webinar and just simply type your questions into the box. It does really help us to answer your questions if you can let us know the slide number your question relates to. That just helps us to get some context around your question. Um, and it can be helpful for you to have the PDFs of the slide so you can refer back to the slide number. Uh, and just a reminder that you can download them from the handout section of the sidebar. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce again Jeanette Ward and Anne-Marie Head from Abley in New Zealand. We're first going to hear from Jeanette Ward, who is a technical director at Abley and a member of the People and Places team, which is focused on planning and designing complex urban environments for safe and healthy people. Jeanette has a diverse engineering background that allows her to see urban environments from a range of perspectives. She has been involved in a range of industry guidance projects. Jeanette will provide a quick overview of the project and look at what to measure and the methods and technologies used to measure pedestrian activity. We'll then hear from Anne-Marie, an Associate Directory at Abley and also a member of the People and Places team. Anne-Marie has a specific interest in planning and designing for active travel modes and understanding the multiple benefits that modes, these modes bring to individuals, the community and the planet. 
Anne-Marie will talk about pedestrian demand and why and how it needs to be assessed to meet future needs. She will also detail various types of audits and assessments. So welcome, Jeanette and Anne-Marie. I'm going to hand over now to Jeanette so that she can share her slides. Thanks, Elena, and kia ora, everybody. I'm going to start today with a quick overview of the project led to the pedestrian-related changes to the guide to traffic management. If you attended our webinar last week, you will have seen these slides already, but I will run through them quickly so that we have plenty of time to talk about the technical content. Firstly, some acknowledgements to the project team. Robin Davies from the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads was the project manager for Ospreys. We'd like to have a big thanks to Robin and her colleague, Michael Langdon, who both promoted the inclusion of training webinars as part of the scope of the project, which is what we're doing today. The consultant team was made up of Anne-Marie, I, our colleague Dave Smith, and also a thank you to Cameron Munro from CDM Research for his contributions to the project. A key part of our project team was the Ospreys Working Group, which included a number of jurisdictional representatives, as listed in the slide. I'd also like to note that the New Zealand Transport Now Agency is also now known as Waka Katahi. I'd like to thank all of these people for their assistance throughout the project. So why did Osroads commission this project? Walking is a fundamental human activity. It's important for the success of urban areas and often provides the key link connecting land use with transport systems. It has also contributed to health and wellbeing of our communities. There is a renewed drive to prioritise investment for walking in Australia and New Zealand jurisdictions, and therefore providing good guidance for practitioners who are planning and designing for walking trips is essential. Prior to this work, the guidance within Osroads, particularly the Guide to Traffic Management and the Guide to Road Design series, weren't up to date with respect to walking and did not always reflect international good practice. I'd just like to note this webinar, as Elena said, is the second of two, and the first one covered the role of walking types and characteristics of pedestrians and planning methods such as strategies. Through our review of the existing guidance in Ostroads, we identified eight research themes that needed to be addressed. These included making sure walkability and accessibility were defined as key transport planning tools, updating the pedestrian types, which we went through last week, encouraging priority for pedestrians, ensuring best practice design for pedestrians is included in the guides, Better recognising walking as a travel mode and the footpath as part of the road procession, embedding the characteristics of a walkable network into the guides, reinforcing safety and personal security issues and outcomes, and also addressing some terminology issues. Our work began in mid-2008 and firstly involved identifying gaps in the current guidance. We then set about preparing content to fill the gaps we'd identified, and this resulted in adding new content and modifying existing content within six parts, so parts three through to eight of the traffic management series. We also identified changes and additions to content within the guide to road design, and these will be made in due course. The guide to road safety wasn't part of this project as it was being updated by others at the time. Given the information about planning and designing for pedestrians is contained in many of the guides, we've developed a navigation graphic that will help you find what you're looking for. This version is still in draft, but we thought it'd be good to share with you today, and it can be downloaded in the handout section of the toolbar. At the moment, the links are to the landing page for each guide, but once the new 
Guide to Traffic Management parts are built online, then the specific parts of the guides will be linked to. One thing to note is that best practice is continually evolving. Our identification of gaps and the development of content to fill those gaps was completed last year. But there are new techniques and practices coming to the fore all the time. One example was the planning for walking toolkit released recently by Transport for London. Another point is that Austroads research is ongoing. So there have been other research reports published since we completed our work. Also, other relevant research is underway, such as a project to classify and measure and value the benefits of place on the transport system. This project is looking at metrics and methods, and I understand it will be published shortly. Both of these projects demonstrate that Austroads wants to acknowledge place in the guidance. This is also why it's important to work with multidisciplinary teams. Obviously, our work was done pre-COVID-19, so we don't have any specific content regarding how to deal with the current challenges. However, we will talk about an audit initiative that resulted from the increased walking during the lockdown period. I'd like to point out that Austro's develops guidance with inputs from the jurisdictions, and it is acknowledged that some jurisdictions will retain their own guidance for some topic areas. And also noting that policy and lawmaking is a jurisdictional function. And finally, guidance can be helpful, but it's not all that you need. We'd like you to understand the fundamental concepts that will develop a mindset that brings planning and for pedestrians to the forefront. So as I mentioned earlier, this is a training webinar. It covers wider content than what is included in the guides. It crosses into guidance contained in the Guide to Road Design and Road Safety. So this webinar is all about planning for pedestrians so that we can encourage and support walking. We will indicate where to find the guidance within the Austro's guides by the little boxes that you see there and the color coding. We will present some project examples to illustrate some aspects of what we've talked about, but these are not included in the Austro's guides. And just a reminder that the design related is still to be released. In New Zealand, a new pedestrian type appeared briefly during our lockdown as the nation held a national hunt, and some of them went rogue, as you can see here. So why measure pedestrian activity and what aspects should you measure? Effective planning for walking requires an understanding of pedestrian movement and activity, or lack of. Measuring walking is, not, is generally not undertaken to the same level of other modes, and this can make it hard to plan. Also, counting methodologies and technology are always evolving. For example, count scaling factors that have been developed over time for other modes don't necessarily exist for pedestrian counting. There's definitely research going on in this area, but very little industry guidance. Walking, of course, is more complex than other modes as it's not constrained to links. Some authorities are now undertaking annual surveys to track walking such as the annual Auckland Transport Active Mode Surveys that allow comparison over previous years. There are a range of questions that you need to work through when you're developing a pedestrian measuring activity. And we're gonna cover why are you measuring? What do you wanna measure? When should you measure and where and using what method? So why? Some reasons that you might wanna measure pedestrians include collecting baseline information for development of a strategy or a plan. So we talked a lot about those last week. Or it could be monitoring a network, a route, or a location. 
It could be project specific. So you're planning for a project and you need to understand what's happening. And you should be measuring also the success of an intervention. Monitoring can also be useful for other sectors. For example, Auckland's City Centre Business Association realised the value of knowing how many people are out and about in the streets of the city at all times. Because this can inform lease decisions, productivity analysis, and helps them recognise the effect of activities like events, public holidays, and shopping rush. The association have developed a website that shows daily pedestrian counts. And if you want to have a look at that, we've provided a link here. So when you set out to measure pedestrians, what can you measure? Well, you can measure how many people are walking and who is walking. And this could be related to the age groups, gender, or mobility impairments. Although some impairments may not be visible to the person observing, such as dementia. What are people doing? They might be lingering in the space, so measuring the time spent might be useful. When are people walking? So this is the time of day, the day of week, the time of year. Where are the people walking? So this could be where they're crossing the road. What do they think of the walking environment? And this will require asking them. We have referenced two useful guides in part three, which will give further detail. These include measuring walking from Victoria Walks and also using public life tools, the complete guide from Gale Architects. Today we are focusing on counting, but participation surveys are also valuable, and both these references provide further guidance in developing surveys. Volumes of pedestrians will vary by time of day, day of week, the season, and also weather. Depending on the measuring method you use, the counts could be for a defined periods or it could be continuous to allow you to define a flow profile. It is best to visit the sites first and observe when is the best time to count. Default, defaulting to just the traffic peak periods is unlikely to be the only suitable time to catch a pedestrian activity. The example here shows pedestrian counts for various road crossing movements along the Oriental Parade in Wellington. The counts were undertaken in the morning, lunchtime, and evening peaks, and also the weekend. This is a very popular place to run, hike, walk, amble. If you are thinking about post-implementation counts, remember to also measure your base data before implementation. This has a range of benefits, and one of these Anne-Marie will talk about later. Also, before heading out to do measuring, check for any new roadworks that might have popped up overnight before starting a survey. That can catch you out. Generally, counts are undertaken as either linear counts or cordon counts. The linear counts consider the number of people passing a specific, specified point or a line. These counts are the most appropriate when people are walking along a defined path or restricted to a limited area, meaning that most of them will pass by the counters. This could include locations such as along a footpath or across a road. The example on the previous slide, the crossings, was many accounts. But you may have noticed that they didn't just focus on the formal crossing facilities, they also counted where people were crossing without a facility. Cordon counts consider the number of people entering and or exiting an area. They are most appropriate for locations where several entrance and exit points are provided. The annual 
Auckland Transport Act, most survey I mentioned earlier, includes cordon counts so that they can monitor people entering the city on foot and compare year upon year. And that graphic there on the right is an example of the summary that they provide. So just moving on to measuring methods and associated technologies. Osroads guides are focused on counting and observation surveys, but there are other great sources of data that can provide insights into walking. These include census data that can be based on statistical areas, household travel surveys, user satisfaction surveys, example of this being council's residence surveys, which may include questions such as satisfaction with footpaths. You could also gain information from public transport passenger data or signals operations data, such as pedestrian crossing activation. All of these, of course, have limitations, an example being the signal crossing activation data. You can see there in the bottom photo that someone is crossing adjacent to the crossing. I haven't actually used the signal activation. A number of counting methods were included in the previous version of part three, but it wasn't a comprehensive list. We have introduced a new table in part three that has the description, typical application, strengths, weaknesses, and key results for each of the methods listed in the slide. I will stress though that technology advances so quickly that aspects of this table will come out of date, but it gives you a steer on what might be appropriate to use. It is recommended that you get further advice and details from suppliers to check that the technology is suitable for your situation. Crowdsource data, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, Bluetooth data, are other potential sources of data that could be useful. And this is an evolving sector. I will now go through two of the methods to demonstrate the table content. Manual infield counts performed by people with data sheets or clickers, and these could be paper-based or using a tablet or app. There's quite a few counting apps now available. Because people are undertaking the counts, they will need to be of a short duration. But longer durations are possible if you give the surveyors a break. Often we use the supervisors to rotate around the count stations at break times. These types of counts allow more than just volumes to be counted. You can gather age, gender, and behavioral information. In the example here in the photo, you would need to break the cross section into counting zones and have two or three surveyors. Some undercounting is likely when you use manual counts because we do have human error. Here's another example. This is passive infrared technology, which detects the difference between the thermal energy emitted by people and the background. In this example, the post on the left is the infrared sensor. But because the path is a shared path, an induction loop has also been installed at the location so that the wheeled devices or metal devices can be counted and then subtracted from the infrared counts to give the pedestrian counts. I will now go over a few other measuring and technology examples. The City of Melbourne has developed an automated pedestrian counting system to better understand pedestrian activity. It is an area-wide counting system where sensors are located on a pole in various spots around the city. The sensors, sensors gather data on people passing each, each point, and then this is shown in real time on the website. The system uses a range of technologies to sense pedestrians, depending on the environment, including video, laser, and infrared. The information can be used to examine how people use different city locations at 
different times of the day to inform decision making and plan for the future. And as I mentioned earlier, this is also useful for other sectors such as retail. You can view the results as shown here and also download the raw data for further analysis and visualization. So I've provided a link there um, to that website. The steps I've included here are just before lockdown on the left and during lockdown on the right, where you can see the reduction clearly. The blue spots in the right photo in the right image are below average volumes. And when you click on a specific location, you get the wee graph that's shown there. And you can see that the red line was the counts on that day compared to the average and higher volumes in the gray. On a smaller scale, pedestrian counts can be monitored manually at control stations or cordon points. It could be possible to utilize an annual cycling focused monitoring program to include pedestrian counts at some stations where shared paths might exist. This example is from an urban cycle program monitoring plan in the Waimakariri district. They undertake manual counts at the same locations each year and also count pedestrians at several of these locations. So these are just, in, this is just an example of where you could actually piggyback on another system that's already in place. Future Streets is a project in Manorie in South Auckland, which is trying to make the neighbourhood safer and easier for people to travel around, especially using active transport. This is, an, this is an example of how user behaviour can be collected before and after an intervention to demonstrate the effect of that intervention. Video data gathered at four, site, four sites for four days before and after the street changes. This data shows Mascot Avenue, a busy location, where there was just a single pedestrian refuge that was upgraded to a raised intersection with zebra crossings across two legs of the intersection. These photos show the patterns of interactions between the pedestrians and the vehicles and how they changed following the street changes. On the left is before the street changes and on the right is the interactions after. The before photo shows high risk interactions in the middle of the road where traffic was free flowing. And on the right, these don't exist anymore on the main road. Some have been displaced to interactions on the side road, access where the traffic speeds are lower. I'm now going to hand over to Anne-Marie to talk about suppressed demand and assessing future demand. Thanks, Jeanette. And kia ora, everyone. So suppressed demand is about who isn't walking. There could be suppressed or unmet demand, also known as latent demand, that until you really stop and observe what is going on, may not be very obvious. The important aspect is to recognize this and understand why people aren't using a street or place or why certain pedestrian groups aren't represented. It could be that the pedestrian facilities do not exist, are inadequate or perceived to be unsafe by some users. In the case of the footpath shown here, a utility box reduces the path width so that a mobility device cannot use it. And in this location, there is no footpath on the other side of the road. Often users of mobility devices get to know their local network so they can plan their route. And that may involve knowing that one side of the street is better for them. At least they have a choice. But here they have no choice except to use the cycle lane or not use the street at all, which is not great if they live there. So why would you need to assess future pedestrian demand? You might want to work out what footpath width is needed 
or how many people will use an area when land use changes, or as an input to an economic evaluation. I acknowledge that forecasting future demand for walking can be difficult, especially as walking is often also a recreational activity, not just a means of getting from A to B. The Guide to Traffic Management Part 3 now includes a table describing methods for assessing how many people might walk in the future. The table includes five techniques listed in the slide and also its benefits, limitations and applications. So these are a similar conditions study, which uses changes in pedestrian patterns experienced in a similar location with a similar intervention. Aggregate behavior uses known characteristics of a population to estimate numbers of walking trips. A sketch plan model applies regression to predict the number of walking trips as a function of physical factors. Discrete choice predicts an individual's choice to walk as a function of other variables. And then of course, we've got travel models used which use traditional four-step um, travel demand models that you can use. I'm now going to give you two examples of applying these methods. So before and after surveys from an area or street can be applied to another street with similar conditions. The change in pedestrian numbers is assumed to be due to the intervention or scheme you've installed. It's a simple method and provides a rough estimate of demand. The limitation is that, is that it can be difficult to find comparable sites where all factors are similar, including environmental and social factors. So as an example, we could use the data from numerous studies of shared spaces in Auckland to show the increase in pedestrians when changing from a standard street to a shared space street. And here is another example of assessing demand where a representation of the pedestrian volumes across a network is developed from first principles based on buffers around key activities such as commercial areas and schools and using known data about the proportion of people who walk to different activities. This can then be calibrated using available count data if you have it. I note this is, gives a broad representation of pedestrian volumes, so it's only useful at a network level rather than for understanding the actual number of pedestrians on a specific link. So moving on from measuring pedestrians and walking activity to auditing the environments that pedestrians use. That is also important, and I'm going to talk about this in the next slides. So today I'm going to discuss pedestrian or walkability audits, and I'm going to briefly touch on road safety audits and how these differ from pedestrian audits. I'll also talk about community street reviews. And I'd like to note there are many other types of audits and assessments relevant to people walking. These are listed in the bottom part of the slide and include what I've termed urban realm and place audits, where the focus is more around how an area is performing in terms of its place function. Safe system assessments, which quantify the degree of alignment of a design or concept with safe system principles, that is with an objective of minimizing fatal and serious injuries. Non-motorized user audits, which are audits of how well a site or street functions for all non-motorized users, so including pedestrians, but also people on bikes and sometimes horse riders. And crime prevention through environmental design or SEPTED audits, which identify the factors that contribute to actual and perceived fear of crime in an area. All of these assessments are important as they focus on people or should consider people walking but we won't have time to go through each of them in detail today. 
And I've included the pictures in this slide as a reminder that audits are not only important for streets, but also other spaces that pedestrians use, such as car parks, lanes, and other places. So what is the difference between a pedestrian or walkability audit and a road safety audit? They're just audits, right? Well, both methods identify issues or deficiencies that can then be rectified. But a pedestrian audit focuses on a broad range of factors that assist and encourage people to walk a particular route. Whereas road safety audits are usually focused on identifying safety related risks and hazards so they can be mitigated. The result is the two methods have different outcomes. For pedestrian audits, a successful outcome, once issues have been addressed, is more people using the route or space. Whereas a successful outcome for a road safety audit is reduced risk of death and serious injuries. So both have their place, but they don't do the same thing. So pedestrian audits can give useful information to a range of people, including urban planners, engineers, and local councils, on how streets, public spaces, or developments rate from a pedestrian viewpoint, or where there are particular issues for pedestrians. Because they are broad in their approach, they can identify safety, personal safety, accessibility, and convenience issues for pedestrians, so these can be addressed. Ideally, an audit should also identify opportunities for maximizing and enhancing the environment for walking. Generally, a walking or pedestrian audit is done on an existing environment in order to identify issues and prioritize investment and improvements, but they can also be applied during implementation of a project. And this example in the, in the photo shows that the sandwich board may not have been identified as an issue if a lower height eye height pedestrian, person in the mobility scooter, hadn't appeared at that moment to cross the road. The process for pedestrian audits is that an auditor or team of auditors walk the route. There are some technologies that can audit particular aspects, for example, footpath condition, but if you want to get a full understanding, then you'll need to get people out on site. There are also some methods that use members of the public as auditors and I'll talk a bit more about how that works later. You need to consider when is the best time to do the audits. Ideally, you want to be there when most people are walking, if that is possible, so you can see how the route or street is being used. It may also be necessary to do an audit during the hours of darkness if the area is expected to be used by pedestrians at night. Just a reminder that you will need to make sure you've covered off any health and safety requirements for the auditors. You need to consider all users when you're out in the audit, including the young, elderly, and people with a disability. I discussed some of the characteristics of these different groups in our webinar last week. And all the characteristics that are, that are important for a walkable environment need to be considered, not just safety. The nine walkable characteristics illustrated in the orange diagram, which Jeanette discussed last week. Here are some photos taken from audits to illustrate some of the points I just spoke about. The top left photo shows a pleasant footpath with landscaping on either side. The photo to the right of it shows the same location, but at night, where the lo location of the street lighting means the street trees cast shadows across the footpath and it is a less inviting path to walk. The photo on the right shows a slippery surface that can occur when it's wet. If you walk down the street when it's dry, 
you need to think about how it might be in other weather conditions. The bottom left and middle photos show crossings outside schools. And as you can see, there isn't enough space for the high numbers of pedestrians wanting to cross the road straight after school. If you visited outside of these times, you may not realize the level of demand that exists straight after school. And finally, the bottom right photo shows that auditing while construction is going on can make it difficult to understand what the pedestrian environment will be like. For example, there may be limited residents or people using the space and construction material can cover some features. And now to a project example. As part of implementing a pedestrian strategy for Launceston in Tasmania, the city of Launceston set out to categorize all pedestrian pathways into primary, secondary, and local routes. They then identified specific requirements and minimum levels of provision for infrastructure depending on the category. This was developed by them using relevant standards and an excerpt of the requirements is shown in the slide. As well as footpath width, surface type, shade and other street furniture shown in the slide, other requirements included signage, tactile indicators and curb ramps, vehicle crossings and greenery. Footpaths were then systematically audited, audited against this checklist. They have audited all primary routes in Launceston, which I understand was a significant task. And interestingly, this audit method is applying a level of service aspect to it, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. There are some structured methods that have been developed that you can follow when completing a pedestrian audit. For example, a pedestrian safety and accessibility audit methodology was developed by Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads and includes a checklist that should be completed by a road safety auditor or team. Someone in the team should have experience in planning and designing pedestrian facilities. The method also recommends pedestrian behavior observation surveys, pedestrian interview surveys, and pedestrian and vehicle counts for certain situations. A walkability audit tool developed in Western Australia provides a structured method for auditors to rate each section of a route and includes a simple template and audit forms. And there are also methods that consider a range of users. I mentioned the non-motorised user audit, which includes pedestrians, cyclists, and horse riding. These methods are referenced in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 3 if you want to find out more. You can also do audits by getting members of the public to help, and these are known as community street reviews, which I will talk about next. So community street reviews are focused on route-based assessments from the perspective of, of people using the route. At least five public participants are asked to rate each section of footpath as well as road crossings by answering a set of questions. This rates the environment with respect to overall, overall walkability as well as more detailed characteristics such as safety, security, obstacles, delay and impedance by others, and ambience. A community street review can identify locations that local people consider dangerous or unsafe. For example, where there may have been near misses, so you don't need to just rely on crash records. They can also be a form of community engagement and can, can help us as practitioners really understand there are a range of perspectives, values and cultures when it comes to designing for people to walk. And there is a guide to undertaking community street reviews published by the Transport Agency in New Zealand, 
and that's referenced in the Guide to Traffic Management Part 3. So here's an example of applying community street reviews over an area where a simplified and customized process was used. The results from participants were combined into ranking maps. For example, the map on the slide shows crossings that were more comfortable for the participants, shown in purple, and less comfortable in red. This can help the local authority to prioritize improvements to the crossings. Community street reviews can also be an opportunity to look through the eyes of those less mobile or with lived experience of a visual or physical disability to identify things they find difficult to negotiate or find less comfortable. And a very topical example of harnessing the power of local people, Auckland Transport Sustainable Mobility Team were talking about their experiences of walking in their neighbourhoods during the lockdown, about how they found access ways and new places that they didn't know about before. And they thought that the lockdown presented a great opportunity to engage their staff in walking audits. Initially, a paper audit form was devised, but realising that some people wouldn't have access to a printer, an online survey was used instead, but focusing on the same questions and allowing comments to be added. The team wanted to find out more about neighbourhood walking experiences with a view to informing potential tactical urbanism pilot projects. They had 33 people complete the survey and the results provided specific information about problems and opportunities, as well as insights about how they felt about their local area. They did consider involving the public, but were conscious that asking for feedback might lead to expectation of issues raised being resolved quickly. Obviously, work would need to be programmed either through maintenance or capital budgets. They are now thinking about how this method could be focused on a particular area and how local people could get involved whilst manage, managing expectations. And here are some photos that were collected by the staff focusing on the positives such as views and artwork and the areas where work is needed such as rough footpaths and site works reducing the footpath width. They also collected comments such as those shown on the right. I like the one about having to beg to cross multiple times. Moving to road safety audits. So these consider the safety of all road users and safe system principles should be integrated into the audits. They are a proactive way of identifying risk with a particular focus on the reduction in fatal and serious injuries. Road safety audits can have a particular focus on one or more road users, for example, pedestrians or cyclists, depending on what you're auditing. And I'll give you an example on my next slide. Undertaking a road safety audit at the feasibility and preliminary stages is really important. If something is not picked up during these stages, then by the time it gets to detailed design, it often cannot be accommodated or remedied. And the Guide to Road Safety Part 6 provides more information on how to do road safety audits. So here's an example of a road safety audit that had a particular focus on pedestrians. Marine Parade in Christchurch was being redesigned with a low speed environment and one option was to remove the zebra crossing shown in the photo, which goes between the pedestrian mall and the library, the playground and the pier, and instead have a crossing where drivers would need to show courtesy to allow pedestrians to cross the road. In New Zealand we call these courtesy crossings. A safety audit of the site was undertaken with particular attention to how people were crossing the road. The auditors stayed on site for quite some time observing the situation and found 
there was a mix of pedestrians, but a high proportion were older people using walking aids. They were very careful to make eye contact with the drivers before stepping out onto the crossing. And rightly so, as some drivers were inattentive and disregarded the crossing limit lines. You can see that with the red vehicle in the middle photo. This was at preliminary design phase when they did the audit. So fortunately, the designers were able to take on board the findings. And in the end, the decision was made to retain the zebra crossing from both a safety and level of service perspective. And now moving on to our final topic for today before questions, pedestrian level of service. So pedestrian level of service is a measure of the quality of the walking environment. Why might we want to measure the level of service for walking? Well, just like for other modes, it would enable you to compare improvement options or interventions on a street to identify which one is better for people walking. You also might wish to look at level of service for walking across a network to identify areas that have a poor level of service so they can be prioritized for improvements. This is an area of ongoing research, and there isn't really an agreed way of measuring level of service for walking yet. This is probably because the factors that are important for people walking and affect whether people choose to walk is much broader and the interplay between each more complex than for other modes, particularly when you compare with vehicles. Secondly, pedestrians as road users are much more diverse in terms of their abilities and needs than, say, vehicle traffic. So the factors probably vary in importance between pedestrians. What we can say is that, in general, pedestrian networks that exhibit the features of a walkable environment will generally have a higher pedestrian level of service and are likely to have more people walking than areas that do not exhibit these characteristics or when one or more of the characteristics is deficient. And there is the orange diagram again, highlighting the walkable characteristics that we discussed last week. From some research I did last year for Waka Kotahi, we found there are a huge range of factors identified in the literature that affect the level of service for walking. And I've shown these here in a word cloud where the factors shown in larger text were identified in more literature sources than the factors shown in smaller text. These factors reflect details about the walkable characteristics and include safety aspects such as surface quality, as well as amenity aspects such as trees and greenery. Obviously, the pedestrian mall example shown here in the slide would have a high level of service as there are no motor vehicles, there's plenty of space to walk, and there are engaging surroundings with trees and places to stop and linger. So various methods and tools have been developed to assess pedestrian level of service, and some of these are listed here and referenced in the updated Guide to Traffic Management Part 3. These are the Pedestrian Environment Review System from the UK and predicting walkability work done in New Zealand, which developed models for rating pedestrian facilities using community street reviews and quant quantitative measurements of the pedestrian environment. The Healthy Streets Check for Designers comes out of the UK and applies the 10 Healthy Streets Indicators shown in the coloured wheel on the right. The check is a spreadsheet tool that enables you to score a street segment on 31 metrics. It includes considerations for pedestrians, cyclists and public transport users. We have had some success applying it in a New Zealand context. However, there are some metrics that are not directly applicable for example, air pollution, lighting standards are different. 
And the check is focused on the type of streets you find in inner London. So some of the requirements are not necessarily applicable in say quieter residential areas in Australia and New Zealand. There is also some walking level of service research for Waka Kotahi in New Zealand that is nearly complete and should be published this year. And finally, the multimodal level of service framework outlined in part four of the guide to traffic management can be used for network operation planning. For example, to compare and trade off level of service between different travel modes, including walking. So finally, a summary of the new guidance that has been added to the guide to traffic management and related to the topics we've talked about today. Most of the changes we've discussed today were in part three of the guide to traffic management. That is called traffic study and analysis methods and it's in your handout. Also worth noting, we modified some content in part eight and that's called local street management to make it clear that pedestrian activity should be measured separately to people on bikes when developing local street management plans. So that's it for, day, for today. Um, back to you, Elena. Great. Thanks so much, Anne-Marie. That was um, a really terrific session from you and Jeanette. Uh, we do have many, many questions, as you could imagine. We've got about um, 400 people uh, with us today. So um, if we don't get to your questions, we will answer them in writing and we'll email you once the Q&A, uh, the written Q&A is ready. A few people have asked for additional um, links that we've been sharing in the chat section, um, so and also a refresh of the links. We'll send that also separately as a separate file so that you have those. Um, and where we can, we'll include some additional links for some of the things that people have asked for. So let's go uh, first to slide 14, which is the first question. So um, one of the questions is, um, has the research also looked at asset management principles for existing or old footpaths? So things like addressing condition rating or intervention levels for slipping resistance, trip hazards and crack width, for example? Not directly. So it talks about hazards that um, are you know, an infrastructure for pedestrians, particularly around tripping, which can be created by some of those asset management issues, but it doesn't go into any detail around interventions with a asset management focus. Okay. Um, I might just stick here. So one of the questions is, um, when we're talking about measuring walking, are we actually talking about walking or pedestrians? So this, the questioner has noted that the Austroads guides include scooters and other vehicle modes in the definition of pedestrians. It's, when we talk about walking, we do mean covering all pedestrian types. Yes, acknowledging that walking does usually relate to people using uh, their legs and putting one foot in front of each other, but there are different ways of moving. So when we talk about walking, we mean uh, pedestrian moving. Okay, great. Okay, we've got a few questions that relate to, oh goodness, my slides are a little bit stuck there. Okay, so a few questions that relate to slide 22. Um, so, is there any uh, guidance around measuring distracted pedestrians? I'm they're assuming that means people looking at their phones or... 
Um, not specifically. I do think something was just released recently by like Asteroids, was it? Yeah, I feel like I've seen a research. We'll go and have a look and see if we can find that information. Okay. There was, yeah, some research recently published on that. But I think it was before our review. I mean, sorry, post our review of the guidance. Okay. Um, and another question is, is there a minimum duration for uh, linear counts of data collection? For example, traffic counts are collected for a minimum, minimum of one week, but the cost associated with pedestrian counts seems to be much higher for the same sort of period. I think it depends on what you're trying to achieve. Um, if you had a counter that could undertake continuous, then probably a week would be great because then you could look at variations along the week, um, just like we do for motor vehicles. But obviously, continuous pedestrian counting technology can be cost prohibitive, um, except if you're doing something like Melbourne did, which is quite a, an extensive rollout. When you're doing a manual count, it, it really does come back to what you're trying to look at um, and what the purpose is. And, you know, I mentioned that you could do an all-day manual count by swapping out um, your surveyors to give them a break. But, again, it is quite labour-intensive and costly, so I think you just have to sit down and think about what, what do you want from the information in preparing that um, methodology. Okay, um, it's a question that relates to slide 26. Uh, which is asking, um, is there a way of distinguishing between pedestrians and cyclists on a shared path when you're using an automated counter? So in the example, on possibly slide 28, Elena, if you go to that. Uh, next one, sorry. Yeah. So this is an example of a shared path counting arrangement where the infrared counter on the post is counting everything. And then the inductive loops in the pavement are counting the cyclists. So then you can do a bit of maths to figure out pedestrian. Um, that is one method. There are um, other types of technologies where I think the potentially the speed of the moving object can distinguish between the two. You're starting to get into probably like thermal imaging and all sorts of um, quite high-tech stuff. But if, if you were wanting to do something at a more kind of grassroots level, I would say that that solution there is a good one. Great. Okay, thanks. I'll just take us back to the previous slide. Um, and the question is asking, um, do you know of any examples where drones have been used to count pedestrians? No, I don't. But I, I do understand that's one of those evolving areas. Um, and I guess the drone is really just the mechanism and then it's the technologies could be one of those technologies 
listed, um, except for the manual counter, of course. Um, but I haven't personally used it and I'm not aware of any examples, but I understand that um, it's something that is being looked at and possibly used in its um, early stages at the moment. Okay. I suppose this also relates to the drone question is, and, and perhaps to other types of counting methodologies, whether there's any um, privacy issues associated with um, using that sort of technology to count pedestrians? I think if you're collecting footage via a drone or other technologies, then there is ways you can blur out uh, facial aspects. And I think if you're using drone, then you're probably getting more of a headshot anyway. Um, but yeah, I think that's one of the things that you need to discuss with suppliers of these types of technologies because they'll be all over this in terms of that privacy aspect and they'll be able to advise you on that. And I'm assuming that's we've had a, a similar question about video and I'm assuming it's the same sort of answer for video. Yes. Great. Okay. Now I've got a few questions relating to slide 32. Okay, so one of the questions is, was there a total reduction in pedestrian movements after the intervention that you've talked about in this um, slide? We'd need to check the paper, but I, the whole point of this project is to increase pedestrian movements or increase pedestrian activity. I don't know if they've measured the number of pedestrians that are crossing. Um, I would have thought it would have stayed the same or increased, not decreased. It's just the interactions between the pedestrians and vehicles has decreased, or the risky interactions, I guess, which is what yeah. we're showing on the slide. Okay, great. Thank you. And I think the other thing to note with that project is there is a load of information on that futurestreets.org.nz website, which may have more detail on volumes. The particular abstract there was around the vehicle pedestrian interactions, but just check out that website um, if you're interested. Okay, I'll just take us to slide 39. Um, so this relates to pedestrian and walkability audits. And the question is, can um, walkability audits act as a de facto urban realm or place audit? Uh, yes and no. I guess uh, an urban realm and place audit is going to look more at how people are using the space, uh, whereas a walkability audit would also look at how pe where people are crossing and how they're using the space, but it's a bit more focused on what the built environment is like there. So yes, they, there's crossovers. Okay. And I think the other thing to note there is that probably um, when you're looking at urban realm public and place, then the survey may be, um, or the audit may be focused on things like whether something has an active frontage, which is creating more activity versus a blank frontage, which is something that doesn't really come through in a pedestrian and walkability audit, which is more focused on our, on the route. On the route. 
Okay, uh, I'll just stick here for this question as well, which is around who can conduct um, pedestrian or walkability audits? Does it need to be a road safety auditor or um, is there a different accreditation, accreditation available? So it doesn't need to be a road safety auditor and there isn't an accredita accreditation and uh, it needs to be someone who has experience in planning and designing pedestrian facilities and understands the needs of pedestrians. Um, what we found when putting this webinar together that not many walkability or pedestrian audits are actually done, but we're encouraging people to do them. Um, so I, I guess, um, yeah, maybe over time there might be an accreditation that, that is developed um, to give some qualifications to people. But no, at the moment it's um, planners and engineers who have experience in pedestrian, designing for pedestrians, they would be the ones to do the audits. And I think the other thing to note is that it's not usually a single person activity. You need a team. Um, some teams may be just two people. It's very similar to a road safety audit. You very rarely do one of those yourself. Um, so you may choose when you're doing a walkability audit to um, engage a landscape architect or urban designer to join your audit team to look at um, other aspects as well. And um, I've got quite a few questions relating to walkability audits. And one of them is, um, do you have examples where audits have been undertaken in the design phase of a project and are there specific technologies that might be used? As I said earlier, we found it really hard to find examples where people have actually done um, walkability audits. So we're not aware of any that have been done in the design phase, but encourage people to do them. And obviously there's those methods sitting there waiting for you to pick up and use. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And do are you aware um, of whether audits consider pedestrian desire lines? And is it appropriate to consider the surrounding land use and attractors such as um, in developing areas? Yes, you should be looking at, at all of those things. So one that's a little bit, um, yeah, okay, I'm sorry, I might just take us to slide 53. Um, and so this is about measuring uh, levels of service for walking. And the question is, um, have you come across the Fruin level of service for pedestrians? And is that commonly used internationally? Yes, so the Fruin level of service um, is based purely on um, demand. Um, so sort of uh, how much space pedestrians have, and that has historically been used um, as the de facto, I guess, level of service for, for walking or pedestrians. I think things are moving on now with this um, area of research where we've realised that for people walking, um, there's a lot of other factors which I showed in that word cloud that affect whether people walk or choose to walk or not. And therefore, um, the level of service needs to incorporate all of those, not just how um, 
close you are walking to other people. So yes, Bruin um, is used in certain contexts, especially when you're look, looking at um, queuing into venues and things like that. But in terms of um, level of service on streets and in, in spaces, um, it needs to be much broader. And that's why there's the research going on. Great. Well, look, thank you so much, um, Jeanette and Anne-Marie. That's just been a, a really great session, another excellent session. And thank you, everybody, for sending through your questions, um, really good questions. We will respond to everybody in writing if we weren't able to uh, respond to your question in the live session today. Um, so just before we wrap up, I wanted to let you know about some upcoming uh, sessions that we have on, particularly on uh, the sessions coming up on the 16th of June, which is looking at a recent um, discussion paper on the contribution of road transport to uh, generating greenhouse gas emissions and uh, some of the methods that um, Austroads is proposing that the network program uh, looks at to uh, address greenhouse gas emissions. And so that will be interesting and obviously active transport is uh, one area that that paper deals with. Uh, so uh, before we close off, um, a session, uh, uh, survey will pop up at the end of the session. Um, thank you to everybody who provided this feedback from the last session that was really valuable and um, we just invite you to give us some more feedback, um, particularly if you haven't in the previous session. So Anne-Marie and Jeanette, thanks so much for your time today and everybody, I hope that you stay well and safe and um, enjoy the rest of your day. See you later everybody.